0: Well, this morning we are, if you haven't guessed it already, we're taking a little bit of a break from our James series uh, and jumping into the prodigal son. I try to preach on the prodigal son or the, the, the parables that eventually come to the story of the prodigal son at least once a year. because It's so, I think, foundational uh, to, I think, what the church needs to be and hear in this generation. And what is a parable? Um, a parable is a story that's used to illustrate an essential principle or point by the speaker. And so Jesus often uses parables to get over what he means. And so um, we're going to read these. There's one parable, but there's three parables in it that Jesus tells in response to some comments that have been made about him. So let's go to Luke chapter 15, verses 1 to 3 and the words will be on the screen. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. So Jesus is telling them a parable that is in direct response to the comments they are making about him. And although it's one parable, there are three different sections and sometimes we call them the parables. But really, it, it, it has in many ways one increasing crescendo of the same story that God longs lost things to be found. What he really longs for is for people to be found and to find their way back to God. And he's telling these parable or this parable in response to the fact that those who were with him, the the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the law, the teachers of the law, they were watching him and saying, he's eating with the wrong type of people. He's sharing a table with the wrong type of people. He doesn't know that the tables we eat around say something. And that's exactly true. The table's Even still today that we sit around, say something, who we invite to our tables says something. And the religious people were looking at Jesus who was sharing tables with tax collectors and sinners will come to them at the moment, and they were saying, you're letting people in who shouldn't be allowed in. And the point of the parables was for Jesus to say, well, actually... In the economy of God, that's exactly who we share tables with. So the tax collectors, while they were known for their dishonesty, Uh, they were known for swindling, they were associated with the Roman Empire, which was the oppressive force and nation or empire in the Middle East at that time. So they were associated with the enemy. And here is Jesus Sitting and eating with tax collectors. And then the sinners, that was the unworthies, the excluded, those that the religious people had decided were, for whatever reason, unclean and unwelcome. Most likely, they were of the lower social, economic classes and religious status. But here's the thing. In In Luke's gospel, it's the tax collectors and the sinners that can't wait to get to Jesus and follow him. All the way through Luke, it's the outsiders as Jesus meets with them who seem to become the insiders. And the religious people who seem to always be in conflict with Jesus seem to look like the outsiders. And so Jesus is welcoming all sorts to his table as an expression of the Father's love. And the religious people of the time said, Why is he doing that? Why is he welcoming those who aren't welcome? So Jesus tells these parables to say, You misunderstand the kingdom of God and the Father's love, the significance of the table is summed up by one of my favorite biblical writers, Joel Green. He says, the table was an instrument for drawing and maintaining social and religious boundaries. But from the perspective of Jesus' adversaries, these have been repeatedly ignored by Jesus. I love that. Jesus completely ignored the religious rules and welcomed the people to his tables that the religious said, shouldn 't be at the tables, Jesus behaves towards these outsiders, these unclean these unclean, contemptible persons of ignoble status, as though they were acceptable, as though they were his own kin oh, isn 't that beautiful? Welcome them to his table as if they were his own kin. Now these parables operate on two levels or this parable operates on two levels the first is it says something about god and we will want to focus on that the second level is is what did it say about the pharisees and the teachers of the law and therefore what might it say to us as the religious as the church what does it say about god what might it have to say about us the discomfort well let's go on uh, Let's pick up at verse three again. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Well, that's a familiar story for any of us who've been in the church for any length of time. Uh, The story of the shepherd who goes to find the one and he leaves the 99 behind. And in some ways, the question is, would we leave the 99 just to find one? Or would we be content with just sticking with the 99? What does it say about God? It it says about God that even when there is plenty, if there's one, there's not enough. If there's one that's missed, if there's one that's not at the table, if there's one who feels left out, it's not enough. Now, when Jesus is telling this parable, particularly to the group of people that are criticizing him, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, it would be very unusual if their minds had not gone back to Ezekiel chapter 34. That will be on their minds because that's a passage about religious leaders and, and it's a passage about teachers of the law who have basically fed themselves and ignored everyone else and in that passage we read these words from ezekiel 34 first first 10 verses of that passage talk about the lack of concern of the religious over the people they're looking after themselves they're feathering their own nests and they don't lift their heads to see the needs of others and then we get to ezekiel 34 11, and we read this for this is what the sovereign lord says I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he's with them, so will I look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. And then we go on to verse 15. I myself, God says, will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. And I can't imagine for a moment that as Jesus tells this parable that it creates a little bit of discomfort amongst the religious as they remember these Old Testament texts that no doubt they've read so many times. And they're thinking to themselves, is is he talking about us? Is that that Ezekiel 34? And we the ones who've been just taking care of ourselves and Not bothering about those who've not yet been found. He's been keeping tables with them. We've been keeping tables amongst ourselves. The example of the the parable is that God goes searching. He says even when the church or even when the religious don't do it, I'll still go searching. Because I'm their shepherd. And when sheep are without shepherd, they become harassed and helpless. And they don't know what to do. So God makes his commitment. God makes his commitment. And he finds the sheep. And it probably wasn't an easy job for him to find the sheep. And he's left the 99 that are okay, but he he leaves them roaming the field. I mean, there was a risk in that he leaves them roaming in the field just to make sure that he can get the one and there's a risk involved in going for the lost sheep that the religious that the pharisees the tax that the pharisees and the teachers of the law and the church t- needs to take so that the lost people might be found by god we can point them towards him so he finds this, the sheep, he carries them back on his shoulder and there's great joy and celebration. He has a party. People, we gotta have more parties. We gotta, my mum threw a party for me when I came back to the Lord. She threw a party for me. I was gonna say the whole church came, almost the whole church came because they, they couldn't believe that I'd come back to the Lord. But we need to have more parties. There was a great celebration, invited the neighbors and, and, and friends so that they could celebrate. Now, I'm not going to embarrass anyone this morning, but but we had we people come to faith in Jesus Christ in the last few weeks. Somebody cheer, anything. That's a celebration. Worthy of a party. And so they celebrated and they called friends and they... And guess what you do at parties? You eat together. Just as a reminder to them all, yeah, not only did God find the lost sheep, the shepherd find the lost sheep, but when they all got together again, they all celebrated and they ate together. The tables were extended. Stupid sheep. Bring in the stupid sheep. Get them at your table. Love them. Care for them. So the party is then shifted the location. It moves from the gathering of friends and, and of neighbors and it moves to a party in heaven and Jesus reminds them. But this is, this is just a pointer towards the party that is in heaven. When one person comes back to the father, when one person comes back to the shepherd, the party in heaven over one And who's the one in the story? Who does the one represent? Well, the, the lost sheep represents the very people Jesus is criticized for eating with by those who are content to sit in the safety with the 99. The party in heaven is for them. So let's remind ourselves of the levels of this parable. Level one speaks about the heart and the will of God, which is like that of the shepherd that moves him to action and celebration. Now, I want you to notice that I I chose my words very particularly there. It expresses the heart and the will of God. It's like that of the shepherd. And the will is important because it moves him to action and then celebrate. I'm not denying there's a lot of love around. But there also needs to be an exercising of the will to action. To widen our tables and to welcome. And so we see in this picture the will in the heart of God that moves him to action. And then to celebration when the lost sheep is found. And then level two, what about our heart and will? Does it move us to action? Does our heart move us to action? Will we exercise the will? That moves us to action and to parties and to celebration and to widening our tables and welcoming them. Okay, that's the first of the parable. Let's go on. Luke 15, 8 to uh, 10. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I've found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. <clears throat> First, it's a parable of one out of 99. Now it's one in 10, one in 10 coins. And so the urgency is escalated. To find what is lost. It's not just one out of 99. It's one out of 10. Seems to be an increase in the significance. The urgency. But what's the significance of the coin? After all, it was only one coin among 10. I, I did a wedding a number of years ago. And uh, as we were just about to go in to... Uh, I was about to go in and announce for everyone to stand. I just checked everything with the bride was okay. And, and I looked down to the ring bearer. And as I looked at the cushion of the ring bearer, where there was supposed to be a little knot, there was not a knot. There was just an empty pillow. And I said, to, Does anybody got the rings to tie into this little knot? Because there was panic on the bride's face. <laughs> they, were on, they, were on, they were on there. They were on there. They were on there. Well, you have never seen so many bridesmaids and a minister scraping around the floor literally on our hands and knees trying to find these wedding rings that were supposed to be on the cushion. We eventually found them in our, in our old church in, in Parkhead. As you walked in the front door, there was this door that was often left open and it led down into what we called the dunny. It's where the old boiler was. So I ended up turning my hands and knees in the dunny Uh, trying to find it and lo and behold here are these two wedding rings i mean i had my wedding ring off carolyn had hers off we were ready to tie them on so that we could go ahead and we found the rings and 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 put them back on well there are two historical options for this story that give the significance to the lost coin the first is that in in first century uh, judaism the woman in mind could have been waiting for her new husband to arrive and take them to their new home. And she would have been wearing a necklace or a headdress that would have had 10 coins sewn into it. And this is what she brings to the marriage. It's a, it's a sign of the marriage. And while the amount was not large, one out of ten, the legal and cultural significance was invaluable. It was part of the announcement and the declaration of the marriage. To lose one coin was unthinkable, shameful, almost a denial of the marriage. So it had such value, they couldn't wait any longer. She started to go all over the house until she found it. The other historical option is that the woman in mind is poor. She's living in a house with no window in it. Hence the need for a lamp. She's maybe part of a village community where bartering is the normal economy. And the coins are therefore the little savings that she has, perhaps to the value of 10 days wages and the loss of even one is what Joel Green calls a catastrophic event. Whatever one you choose, The value of the coin is significant. And as I think about the story in the light of the way God sees us, a lot of people think they're just a little coin that nobody would see and nobody would bother looking for. That's not the significance of this scripture. It recognizes the significance of that coin. and Some of us feel like we're just a discarded coin. And you're not. God sees you and he wants you to know that you're to be found, to be known, to be welcomed, to be loved back to him. The stakes are high. They've moved from 1 out of 99 to 1 in 10. The value increases. And the second second thing to know is not just the urgency, but the disruptive effort that there is to find that which is lost. She lights a lamp. She sweeps and overturns the house, searching carefully until she finds it. Now, when I'm hoovering and uh, looking for stuff, which is not unusual, you know how disruptive that can be. I mean, when you've lost something that is really important, I mean, I've I've, I've been through cupboards and had them sprawled all out under the floor and, you know, going into corners and trying to find stuff that I thought is, it is a disruptive thing process when you decide it's time to go find the lost and sometimes it means you have to turn the house upside down this is the uncomfortable bit I was with uh, some national leaders in the church of the Nazarene just a few weeks ago and we were talking about this passage of scripture and do you know what we were wrestling through we were wrestling through What might this parable have to say to the church? What might I have to say to us that if we are truly to be a church that wants lost to be found, we might have to have some disruption. We might have to cast a light and pull out some things and lose some stuff, some other stuff that's not needed and get it out of the way so we can find what really matters. This is a disruptive parable. The woman had to start taking the house in some ways apart till she found this lost coin. And I wonder if in the church we need a bit of overturning, a little bit of sweeping out, So that we can make space for that which is important, the lost being found. To sweep out the old, the steward, the stuff so that we can follow Jesus' pattern of focusing on the lost. So the question to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law to us, would they, would we be willing to overturn the house for one in 10? Or will we just keep the 99 or the nine and forget the one? The heart and will of God is like that of the woman level one, moving him to action, disruption and celebration. I'm amazed at the lengths God will go to to find the lost. We're gonna sing a song later on. Remember that? When we sing that song about what God is willing to do. Level two, what about our heart and will? Does it move us to action, disruption, and then celebration for the lost? Then there's the party, the joy, the celebration, the calling of friends and neighbors to gather and to eat. So there's more parties. So if you didn't hear it already, let's have more parties. Let's widen our tables. Let's invite those who otherwise don't get invited to tables. Let's disrupt things in our own lives, interrupt things so that we can welcome Those who maybe are lost. The parties, the party in heaven, they ate together. And then Jesus makes the same connection. The woman called for a party, but there also is a party in heaven. The joy of heaven over one who returns. And who are the one in this story? Who does it represent, this little coin? It's the very people Jesus is criticized for eating with by those who would have been content to just sit with the nine. So Jesus isn't done with his parable yet. That's two done, one to go. Jesus then goes on to give the third story in the parable. And we take this from Luke 15, 25 to 32. Sorry, 11. 11. 11. 32. Jesus continued yep we've got it. Jesus continued there was a man who had two sons the younger one said to his father father give me my share of your estate so he divided his property between them. Now really important that we understand what's happening here. First of all if the father had an estate he was probably wealthy um We'll come back to that later. But he was probably quite wealthy if he had an estate that the son was asking for a share of. The son asking for a share, oh, that's a real dishonor in first century Judaism. That is almost like saying, Dad, I wish you were dead so I could have your money. Give us your money. Big landowner with resources, Dad, give us your money. Wish you were dead. That in effect would be what people would take from him. why it was such a shameful thing. Such a dishonor to the son and to the father and to the family and to the community and to the village or the town that they were part of. I I don't think we can just grasp how dishonoring and shameful this is. But with all the resources the father gave to the son. Not long after that, verse 13, the younger son got together all he had, set off For a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. (coughs) After he had spent everything. That's a lot to spend. After he had spent everything. Everything that his father had given him. There was a severe famine in that whole country. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country. Who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating but no one gave him anything. And we talk about from rags to riches. This is a riches to rags story. In the end, he had nothing, having had everything. So he went, um, when he came to his senses, verse 17, not like the sheep, the sheep didn't come to his senses. The shepherd had to go find them. But here, the son comes to his senses. He said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. This is a journey of returning. You know, we believe that the Holy Spirit is at work in the lives of people who are not yet aware of his love for them. We believe that the Spirit of God is already at work, going ahead, because he wants the lost to be found. And the invitation is for the church to join him in that exercise, in that journey of love, helping them return. So you have, there'll be people around you who are wondering what does this life I'm in even mean? They're trying to come to their senses, but they may not even know what that looks like. And the son came to his senses, and so he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him, and he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Now I've mentioned this before when I've spoken about this passage but we have a picture in our mind often of a farmer being in a field away in the middle of nowhere where he saw in some distant hill his son returning and it was one of these lovely solitary moments between father and son. That's really an unlikely interpretation of the story. It's more likely that a wealthy landowner who had hired people and servants to work the land that he would have lived in the town or the village or the city in probably the prominent properties. And more likely the prominent properties were higher up so that he could see them from his penthouse. And he could see his son beginning to make his way towards the city gate or the town gate or the village gate or whatever the gate was. And because of the dishonor that the son had brought, not just on himself and on the family and on the father, but on the community, if the community get to the son before anyone else, they'll deal with him. And they'll deal with him harshly. And so the father, now you picture a Middle Eastern man of a particular age wearing his long robes. You picture him running. Running. You ever, you ever seen a Middle Eastern man run with his robes on? No, because they don't. What is he, he gathers up his robes? A, a, a very kind of awkward and shameful reality. Tucks them in his belt and he belts his way. He runs to get to the gate before anybody else in the village or the town gets his son. So that he receives a different response from the one that the village is likely to do. And he gets to him and he throws his arms around him so that everybody knows, welcome home, son. Welcome home. And he welcomes him and he puts a ring on his finger. I was thinking I see say bells on his toes after that, but <laughs> puts a ring on his finger. So that he knows he's welcomed home. The shame of that ring. the indignation of Others, as they watch, running so that he can get to his son before anybody else does. This is about humiliation. He humiliated himself to make sure he got to the son to welcome him home. We'll celebrate communion in a few moments. And when we take the bread and the cup this morning, it points us to a humiliating event, the cross of Jesus, where the son of God is humiliated with a criminal's death so that he could say to the world, to the lost, with arms stretched out, come home. Humiliation to say, welcome home to the lost. And the story is one of humiliation before its celebration. As the father runs towards the son. The heart and will of God is like the father moving him to action by way of humiliation and then celebration. What about our heart and will? Does it move us to action? Even if it brings humiliation before celebration. But what a celebration. What a celebration. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his fingers and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead, but is it now alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Kind of feel that we should cheer. So he began they began to celebrate. <laughs> what an amazing parable of the lost being found. I love a good party. I wish that we had more for all kinds of reasons, but particularly for the lost and for the lost returning, the joy, the celebrating, calling friends and neighbors, the ones (laughs) who were probably going to I'll not go into the details of the kazaza ceremony. It's a very interesting ceremony. The ones who would have gone to the gate and performed a kazaza ceremony on the sun so that they made sure he was not welcome. Now they're invited to the celebration to say, come and eat with my son, will you? <laughs> That's my boy. Yeah, yes, yeah, the, one, the one that took all my uh, estate and went and squandered it all. Let's, let, yeah, come and join us. Yeah. I wonder how many of them came to the celebration. But that sense of celebration, the joy, for one that was lost has been found. Who does he represent? That lost son. That was the very people that Jesus is criticized for eating with by those who were either content to be in the company of the older brother or were actually the older brother. Let's go to the older brother. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. (coughs) When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants, and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours, who squandered your property with prostitutes, well, I was interested at that point, nobody's mentioned anything about prostitutes until this moment. <laughs> you ever noticed that? It's think how stories grow arms and legs, isn't it? Getting to make up things about people that nobody's ever said. Anyway, that's just an aside. He squandered your property with prostitutes, comes homes, you killed the fattened calf for him. He's raging. Now what has happened? My son, the father said, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And Jesus doesn't resolve the parable. He just leaves it open. What did the son do? Did the son come and join him at the table? Or did he go in a huff and stay in the field and miss out on the party? And it's kind of like saying to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, I are you going to come to the table or not? You're at the wrong table. This is how God's table operates. Will you come to it and will you join me in welcoming the ones that you don't really want to welcome? And rather than just being content with the 99 or the 9 or yourself, that you would join me at my table, Jesus says. That's why we're sharing communion round tables this morning. It's a sign of our welcome. So, we do when we sit round tables with people, we say, You're welcome. We're equal. We're in this together. Let's not be the older son. Joe Green writes that. Jesus' critics were being invited to not only drop their concerns about Jesus, but indeed to replicate his behavior in their own practices. That's our invitation. So Jesus welcomes us to do. Those who close or protect their tables may in the end find themselves at the wrong table with the wrong people. They saw no need for their own repentance, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And they saw no need for urgent hospitality and love towards those who were not like them. The outsider, the excluded, the unclean, the foreigner. To somehow see them as kin with a place at the table. Carolyn hates this picture. I love it. It's called The Last Supper. I don't know if you can see it, because I didn't dust it. (laughs) It's a brilliant picture. You'll see a set of hands at the bottom that symbolize the hands of Jesus. And you'll see that they are breaking bread together as we are about to do. What a ragtag bunch he sits at a table with. I love it. I think it's a beautiful picture of the kingdom. I think it's a beautiful picture of what we do with hospitality. And I think it actually is a picture of what is expected even in communion. Why? Because we celebrate the welcoming of the Father. To those who are far, who runs all the way to the edge of the village to make sure the sun knows your home. Your home. And so, as we share in communion around tables, now that you know each other, I would always hope that there's always room for more, that we make room. We jostle ourselves into positions to make sure we can get another chair in at the table, another one in, so they too can discover the coming home of God. Who will you welcome to your table? Lord, I thank you this morning that in this parable we three times are reminded of just how valuable we are and how much you love us. And that how much you love the world around us. And that you will go and seek them. And that you are and you invite invite us to join you. Lord, I pray first that you would remind us of such amazing love for us. Come Holy Spirit. Plow it deep into our spirit, just now our heart, recognizing the great love of God for us. And then Lord, Lord, Work on, may our hearts be so transformed that our will can do no other except choose to be one of those who goes to seek, to find that which is lost. To welcome, to embrace, to extend tables and make room for those who often have no room and are given no room. May we be a church of this parable because it's your heart. In Jesus' name.